So I said today we're considering the African-American migrations, the exodus from the U.S. South. Uh, we had hoped to have Isabel Wilkerson on the phone. Uh, she is the author of Warmth of Other Sons, the epic story of America's Great Migration. But she was unable, due to prior bookings, was unable to join us. Uh, then we had a problem that Walter Turner was a professor at a local community college in the Oakland, San Francisco Bay Area, was going to join us, but he again had a conflict. So what we've decided to do today is to to listen to a interview with Isabel Wilkerson talking about her book, The Warmth of Other Sons, and then to have a discussion about the impact of the Great Migration on the African-American community and on the United States as a whole, and also some of the parallels that uh, Ms. Wilkerson draws between immigration to the United States and the migration of African-Americans internal to the United States. So the interview is a 24-minute taped interview that was conducted by Tavis Smiley, in which uh, Isabel Wilkerson talks about her book. So we will listen to that tape, and then uh, we will then have a discussion of, of the African-American migration and some of the issues that I just raised. So I want to thank you all for joining us, and I hope you all can stay for the uh, for the discussion. So the way it's going to proceed is that I'm able to mute everybody, so I'm going to be muting uh, the conference call, and then if you want to uh, if you want to uh, ask a question, I'll give you instructions on how to do that. This series, as I mentioned, was, is sponsored by the Black Alliance for Just Immigration and by the Priority Africa Network. Uh, Baji is a group that's been around since 2006 in, with a mission of bringing African Americans and, and immigrants together to fight for social and economic justice for all of us, which includes support for fair and just immigration reform. The Priority African Network has been around uh, for since 2003, lifting up the issues on the African continent and organizing African immigrants in the Bay Area. So the two of us have come together to co-sponsor these, these series of forums. So I'm going to ask us to listen to this interview and then have some discussion. Thank you.
essay huge. I mean, New York Times bestseller huge, cover of the New York Times book review huge. Everybody's talking about this now. And I under, underline the word now four or five times. Everybody's talking about it now, but only because you to tell this story, a story that is in the very episode Conference of America, muted. America wouldn't be without this migration, and yet it took you to invest 15 years of your life to, to write this story. And I'm saying this again, not to make you blush, but because for the importance of this story to the story of America, it had not been told in this way prior to. So why has this story been sitting untold for all this time? Well, one reason is that it began during World War One. And it lasted until 1970, so went on for a really long time, went on for basically three generations. That meant for any of the journalists who might have been covering it, the ones who started covering it in the beginning weren't there at the end. So it was hard to grasp all that was going on. And another thing is that during the waves of it, people kept thinking it was going to end, but the people kept coming. And so it was hard to grasp in until really after it was over with. And then finally, uh, people didn't talk about it. That's one of the biggest losses, I think, to African-American families is the people, once they left, they turned away from the South, they didn't look back, and they often didn't tell their children about it. They didn't want to talk about it. It was too painful what they'd gone through in the caste system of the South, which was Jim Crow. So we're really talking here about the migration of six million uh, African-Americans, although we were not African-Americans at the time. No. <laughs> Colored, Negro, <laughs> whatever we were. The migration of six million of us from the south to the north, what was the driver, the primary driver or drivers behind that massive migration from the south to the north? The primary driver was that for 80 years, from 1896 until uh, after the Civil Rights Movement, African Americans were living in a, a caste system that dictated their every move. They were bound by the laws of Jim Crow, which uh, infiltrated every aspect of interaction between blacks and whites. For example, it was against the law in Birmingham for a black person and a white person to check her together. Someone actually sat down and wrote that down as a rule. They must have seen a black person and a white person playing checkers, having too much fun, and said, no, we can't have this. There were black and white um, ambulances. There were black and white taxi cabs. And there were even black and white Bibles. There was a black Bible and a white Bible in many courthouses to swear to tell the truth on. Same Bible, though? No, different Bibles. I mean, I mean, the, the, the same Bible, one black and one white. Correct. Okay. I missed that. <laughs> I thought there was just one. They made it a black Bible. They made it a black Bible. Oh, okay. I, um, so th these six million Negroes were coming from where down south and going to where up north? Well, that's one of the things that I really wanted to get a grasp of for this book, is that it wasn't one migration. It was multiple migrations, okay. and it was three main ones. One was up the east coast from Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, Virginia, up to Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Boston, New York. And then that was that there was a middle one, a middle uh, migration stream from Mississippi, Alabama, western Georgia, up to Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland. And so that was the middle one. And then the one that's least known about and which I really enjoyed writing about was the one from uh, Louisiana and Texas to California and the entire West Coast. You tell this wonderful story through the individual stories of three people, which I'll get to in, in, in just a second. Um, but, but I'm curious here at the outset, what made you 
devote so much time and attention to this particular subject matter? Well, I'm a daughter of the Great Migration, as really you know, the majority of African Americans that you meet in the North and West are products of the Great Migration. It's that massive. And as many of us owe our very existence to the fact that people migrated. In my own uh, family's case, my mother migrated from Georgia, from Rome, Georgia, to Washington, D.C., and my father mm -hmm. migrated from Southern Virginia to Washington, D.C., where they met, married, and, and here I am. And had it not been for the Great Migration, I wouldn't exist. And yet I felt that the story wasn't really being told from the perspective of the people who had lived this. We didn't know why they left or how they made the decision to leave. What were their lives like before they left? How'd they get the courage to leave the, the only place they'd ever known for a place they'd never seen for an uncertain future in a place that was often cold and forbidding, anonymous, and not welcoming to them? And how did they make it once they got there? Those are the kind of questions that I had. And those are the questions that really helped to give us a sense of, of how the cities came to be and how so many African Americans ended up in these cities, Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland, uh, Los Angeles. New York. When you say, Isabel, how these cities came to be, there is a narrative, a storyline that's been written and told for years now about what this migration did to these various places that you just listed. And it's not been, it's not been a cute story. It's not been a, a sexy story. It's not been um, a kind narrative about what we brought with us when we came. Um, let's talk about what that storyline has been and how you challenged that in the text. Well, the story has been that the, that the migrants brought all the ills of the cities, the pathologies to the city, brought out of wedlock birth, brought drugs, crime, yeah. and everything else that you can think of as bad in the cities, that's what the people brought. That's what the storyline has been for so long, partly because in the beginning they were looking at all the overcrowding and all of the fact that the, that the vices were often permitted in the neighborhood that they were forced to live in, these small slivers of, of land that they were forced to live in, and the police looked away as all these things were going on. But the people who were arriving were fresh from the farm or fresh from small towns, almost too frightened to do anything. They were living one on top of one another. There were even cases where people were so overcrowded, you had multiple families living in one room, these kitchenette apartments. And in some places, particularly in New York, there was so much of a need for a place to live that people had to rotate use of a bed, meaning that they ended up having night shift people would come in and it was time for them to, to go to sleep and they'd have to tap the shoulder of someone who was sleeping from the, from the day shift and had to get up. It gives a whole new meaning to the idea of timeshare. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, um, I was fascinated when I got a chance to, to get into this because after Katrina, I was on the air here and I railed every night on this program and on Meet the Press and everywhere I, where I appeared talking about Katrina. I railed on the media. I couldn't stand the media picking up on this term of refugees to refer to these black men and women in New Orleans who were, in fact, American citizens. They are not refugees. I said over and over and over again, these are American citizens. And I thought it was important to make that point so that we wouldn't lose sight of the fact that these people are us. They are us. I actually refer to them as immigrants. I, I refer to them as having the same kind of immigrant, immigrant heart and motivations and desires and goals and dreams for themselves as any immigrant, as any person who might have crossed the Atlantic in steerage. So what I'm, what I'm looking at is the fact that what is it that propelled them is a human story, a classic American story, and how tragic is it that they ended up having to go to far reaches of their own country in order to find the freedom that they had really uh, would have been born to. And so when I use it, I'm using that as a, in a way as a provocative term to get us 
to think about this migration differently. They were doing what so many other uh, groups of people are often lauded for doing. In other words, they came to these cities without really any any backup at all. They took they uh, lived in neighbor, in neighborhoods that were they were confined to. They doubled up and tripled up in homes uh, or apartments or cold water flats. They took multiple jobs and ended up often making more money. Uh, in the aggregate than the people who were there already. In other words, they were working very hard in order to survive, which is the classic American story, a classic immigrant story, and yet they had to do that within their own country, within the borders of our own country, and yet they were not immigrants. You're absolutely right, they were not immigrants. I actually like to use the word immigrant with an E, meaning they were, and it was an outpouring. In many respects, ultimately, this was a defection. The people were in some ways seeking political asylum for a cat from a caste system that uh, humiliated and degraded them and the people who were perpetrating it. Everybody loses when you have a caste system like that. When you were you were obviously working on this when Katrina hit, were you seeing parallels in your writing and what you were watching on TV? I did see parallels because you saw people uh, displaced from their homes. Right. And also, what's also a parallel is that the people did not want to leave. And one of the things that that I think that the uh, descendants of the migration have to realize is that they were living in an untenable situation, but they had to leave mother, father, grandparents, the land that the four parents, the four bears had built for free. They had to leave a lot, and they there was many, there were many sacrifices that they had to make. And the same thing with Katrina. People didn't want to leave New Orleans. They didn't want to leave uh, that area, but they were forced to. And in the same way, these people made this, the, act, the ultimate sacrifice to leave the only place they'd ever known. And I'm humbled by the idea, the courage that they had in doing so. Yeah. Well, speaking of courage, these folks had a lot of courage. And as I said earlier, you tell the story um, of the migration, these migrations, I should say, um, through three people. Mm -hmm. In no particular order, Miss um, Ida May. Miss Ida May. Tell me about Miss Ida May. She was a sharecropper's wife who was terrible. At picking cotton. She could kill snakes. <laughs> Sounds like me. <laughs> I would have been terrible at it. <laughs> You're right about that. Uh, she was terrible at picking cotton. She could kill snakes and, you know, wring the neck of a chicken for dinner, but she could not pick cotton, did not like picking cotton. And her uh, her family ended up having to leave because a relative, a cousin, had been uh, beaten to within an inch of his life because uh, he had been accused of a theft that he had not committed. The thing that he that they accused him of stealing um, turned up the next day, and so he uh, the, the when her husband found out what had happened to his cousin, he went home to his wife Ida May and he said, "This is the last crop we're making." So they ended up in Chicago from Mississippi, which was part of that Chicago that Mississippi to Chicago uh, migration. Uh, Mr. George Starling. George Starling. George Swanson Starling. He was uh, a college student who had to drop out because in those days uh, there were very few places in the state of Florida that, that would accept African Americans as, uh, as students, and, and the family could not afford to continue sending him to, uh, to uh, Tallahassee for school, and so he ended, ended up having to work as a citrus picker. Once he got there, because he'd had education, he noticed that there was, there were, uh, they were being uh, ill-treated and underpaid for the hard work that they were doing. It was dangerous work, more dangerous than we can imagine. And they had to splice together ladders in order for them to go up into these 30-foot and 40-foot trees. People would fall and break a limb, and there was nothing for them. There was no workers' compensation at that time. And they were only being paid 10 
or 12 cents for a box, which would then go on the open market for $4 or whatever. And so he began to agitate for higher wages and better conditions. And in doing so, he got on the bad side of the growers who did not appreciate, nor did they accept the idea of unionizing or of African-Americans standing up for such things. And he had to leave and basically flee for his life. He left Florida for Harlem in 1945. And third, Robert Foster? Third, Robert Foster. Yeah. He was a surgeon who had... Uh, uh, performed uh, ably and with distinction in the Army during the Korean War, but he got out of the Army and found that he could not practice surgery in his own hometown of uh, Monroe, Louisiana. And so he set out on a course that ended up being m far more treacherous than he'd anticipated getting to, uh, to get to California. And he ended up being somebody's doctor. He ended up being we somebody's doctor, yes. He ended up being Ray Charles' doctor. <laughs> Great story. <laughs> uh, Ray Charles' doctor. Um, were these people primarily educated? Were they uneducated? Were, t tell me about who was making this migration. Well, there were a cl clearly a range, and yeah. all of them had lived under Jim Crow, which meant that their education was not going to be what it was for even the uh, the white people in the neighborhood in the region where they were. Uh, the they were, it was very clear that it was separate and unequal, as we we know. So they might have been educated, but it wasn't the same kind of education that they probably de that they would have deserved. However, on the whole. Um, they were better educated than the people who remained. Yeah. They had uh, a kind of an impatience for the system that they were under. In fact, one of the things that you commonly would hear is that I need to leave because I'm going to, I'm going to die or either be killed if I do not, if I stay here. In other words, I have they, they had a certain character about them, and uh, an unwillingness to accept the status quo that that made them feel like they needed to leave, which is something about an immigrant mindset, which is what I'm saying about the desire, the human desire for something better. Um, they tended to be more. They had more resources of determination, and they often were willing to work longer hours. There was something in them, like a hunger within them, that would not permit them to stay, and they had to go. They, they just simply had to go. Does that say something, then, Isabel, about the folk who stayed behind, those who didn't go? I think that there's a way of looking at them that is also beautiful, and that is that they were the keepers of the culture. Mm. They were the keepers of the culture. In fact, some of them would say, we need to stay here so that you have a place to come back to when you need to. And I thought that was beautiful. So uh, together, this, was, this migration was in some ways the precursor to the civil rights movement in many respects. And one way it was because it showed that this uh, underpaid, lower, lower level of the caste system of the South, uh, the underpaid workers of the South, uh, had an option and were willing to take that option. They were willing to act on that option, which was to leave. Secondly, those people, once they got to the north, offered uh, in some ways leverage for the people who stayed. The people who stayed were able to uh, have a place to go if things got tight during the, the civil rights movement. In other words, they could take more chances and more risks. They also were more aware of the freedoms uh, in the north they had not been aware of before. Remember, before people began to leave, there, were, there was not the awareness of what even could happen in the North. What was it like in the North? It was just a mirage. It was a dream. And this now, after the migration, there was an awareness. Everybody had a cousin or a great aunt or an uncle or, or a neighbor who had gone up North, and that meant that they had options that they didn't have before. And finally, these people who left and went up to the North were often making more money than the people in the South. And so very much as with other immigrant groups, in other words, African Americans were like anyone else, when they got uh, away from home, they sent money back home to the people who were in the South, and they helped to finance the civil rights movement. So it was this great period of time between World War I and the 1970s when the civil rights 
uh, movement actually began to bear fruit, that the, that the pressure was being put on the South. When this migration began, 90% of all African Americans were living in the South, 90%. By the time it was over, nearly half were living outside of the South. They were living in that great arc from Washington, D.C., up to Boston, and over to Cleveland and, and Chicago, Detroit, and then all the way over to, uh, to Los Angeles. They were living anywhere but the South. That meant it was a dispersal of an entire people across the country. To your point now, and I'm glad you went there as well, to your point about a dispersal of these black folk all across mm -hmm. the country, um, one, one does not be a rocket scientist to know that the period you're talking about happens to be um, – as Taylor Branch might put it, America in the King years. It certainly covers a part of the King years. And one doesn't think of it in that way. When, you th when we think of Dr. King fighting for justice and equality and for the rights of uh, black folk, we think primarily of black folk in the South. And that's, of course, where Dr. King was based. But it's fascinating to think now, as I listen to you talk, that while King was leading this movement, Negroes were getting out of the South as fast as they could at this very time. At that very moment. In yeah. fact, he had, too. You know, he went to Boston University, right. and he had the exposure to the freedoms of the North. Uh, that was in the early 50s. And he also met his wife, Coretta Scott, in the North. Mm -hmm. And so that even had a, he, there was a connection there between the Great Migration. You could say he was part of the Great Migration for a time. Mm -hmm. And then he went back to fight for, uh, for the ultimate, that ultimate moment of truth in the South as well. To your point now, were there folk like King who escaped the South for whatever purpose, whatever reason, whatever period of time, and then felt called back to the South? I must say most did not. Yeah. Most in that original migration left, and they left for good. Some of them even changed their name when they left, mm -hmm. and they didn't look back, which is why the story often was not told to the succeeding generations, and I think it needs to be told. I think the entire country needs to be aware of the sacrifices made by the people and the ultimate impact that this had on the country. Since we're talking about King here for the moment, in one of his more famous speeches, as you well know, King says, um, talking about the, the reason why he was fighting so hard for the right to vote for black people, King argues that the Negro in the South cannot vote, and the Negro in the North, King says, has nothing for which to vote, which raises the question of how these Negroes were treated when they got up north. When they got up north, they, they faced tremendous resistance and hostility. They were hemmed in into roped-off uh, what inner cities came to be known as ghettos, whenever they tried to escape and get into other neighborhoods, obviously there were fire bombings and all kinds of things. There's an example of a, of a case in Cicero where a family, a, a middle-class family, tried to move in, and the people, they were not permitted to move in. Ultimately, when they got their things, their belongings into the second-floor apartment, it turned out that the people, uh, several thousand people, uh, often of uh, Eastern European descent, newly arrived themselves and not very different from the people uh, who had arrived from the, from the South, meaning they were all people of the land, all trying to, to survive in the, in the city. They actually went into this apartment and took everything out, threw it out the, the second floor window, piano, furniture, chairs, even ripped out the, the uh, faucets and uh, toilets and, and radiators and threw them all out, set everything on fire, then set the entire building on fire, which then rendered the white residents uh, homeless. And this was in Cicero in the early 50s. So they written that tremendous uh, resistance. And part of it was because the arrival of people who were so poorly paid in the South put pressure on the North. It put pressure on the people who were scuffling and trying to survive just having arrived from other parts of the world, and it meant that it could potentially press down the wages of people in the North. So it was all a structural thing. It wasn't always personal, but it played out in really ugly ways often. 
And so what happened was the people uh, met resistance from African Americans, the small group of African Americans who were there already, who were concerned about their own tenuous status there, and other groups that might be competing with them. And so they met so much resistance that it's a wonder that they survived. They had to bear up under all the mythology that we talked about. But in reality, the people who migrated were more likely to be married than, um, than the people that who, were, who were in the North already. They were more likely to be raising their children in two-parent households. All these things are uh, only recently being discovered as sociologists and others look at the, the facts from the census data. So there's a lot new that's coming out about them. I started this conversation by doing what I could in, in two seconds to give you, I think, the props that you deserve for what you've done with this historic, what will be a classic and historic text. Um, but I don't want people to think that I was being hyperbolic. So let me just ask it as a question. Um, tell me, situate for me this migration in the making, the maturing of America. It is hard to separate out the legacy of this great migration uh, because it's so embedded in our culture. And to me, with any mass movement of people, one of the things that you look for are what are the touch points in society that left its, where it left its mark. And there are certain things that we take for granted that simply would not have existed without the Great Migration. Motown, for example, would not have existed, simply would not, because Barry Gordy, the founder of it, his parents had migrated from Georgia to, uh, to Detroit, where he founded Motown. And where did he get his talent? He got his talent from children of the Great Migration. Diana Ross, the Jacksons, all of them were children of the Great Migration. Jazz, as we know it, would not exist. Um, not Miles Davis, his parents migrated from Arkansas to Illinois, where he had the luxury of being able to, to practice for hours upon hours. He never would have been able to do that in the cotton country of Arkansas. Same goes for Thelonious Monk, whose parents had brought him from North Carolina to, to Harlem when he was five years old, where he got the luxury, the self-indulgence of being able to, you might argue, of being able to learn to, to, uh, to become the great musician that he was that he never would have been able to do in the tobacco country of North Carolina. And John Coltrane. John Coltrane migrated from North Carolina to Philadelphia at 17, where he got his first alto sax. What would music be had he not gotten that first alto sax? And music is just one genre. Music is just one genre. You yeah. can't start with literature, right. politics. I mean, on so many levels, it's affected our society. So here's the actual question then. Um, what's the abiding lesson, now that you've blessed us with this text, what's the abiding lesson for black people of this migration? I would hope that it would encourage uh, every African-American family, North and South, to examine its history. This was a migration that had no leader. It was a leaderless migration. People made decisions on the basis of what was in their heart. And I think this is a, uh, a, a story of in inspiration that says that so much power is within us. These individual people, one by one, multiplied by six million, ended up helping to change this country. And that's an inspiration for anyone of any race, or particularly for black families. People need to go back and talk with the oldest people in their families and find out what are the stories before it's too late. I felt a great urgency in working on this book because I knew the people were, were passing on, and I didn't have but so much time to get to them. And that would be the lesson I would be seeing in it. She made history back in 1994 when she won that Pulitzer Prize, uh, and now she has a book out that everybody is talking about. It's called The Warmth of Other Sons, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration. It is, to my mind, a gift to all of us in America, written by the Pulitzer Prize winner, Isabel Wilkerson. Isabel, thanks for the book and honored to have you on the show.
Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Okay. So, Warmth of Other Sons. I, like uh, Isabel Wilkerson and probably many of you on the call, is also a ch- child of the uh, Great Migration. And uh, so I'd like to, for us to talk about the Great Migration from 1915 to 1970, six million African Americans picked up and moved to the west and to the north. And so I'd like to have us discuss uh, what has been the impact of the Great Migration on on the African American community and on our society as a whole, and what parallels. Isabel Wilkinson talked about the parallel with immigration. What parallels do we see with the current immigration debate? If you want to ask a question, if you want to make a comment, press star 5, and I will unmute you to hear your comment. And I'm asking you to keep your comments short so that we can get a lot of people in. And um, anyone who wants to, please press star 5. Okay, waiting for our first comment. Nobody has a comment or a question? Has anybody read the book? Here we go. Here's our first comment. Go ahead. You're unmuted. Yes. Hello. Hello, can, can yeah, you hear me? You're on. Okay, good. Um, there's a bit of an echo. I don't know if anyone else can hear it. If you're on I guess speakerphone. I, I don't have a question so much as a comment. As I was listening to Isabel Wilkinson speak, um, as an immigrant, I couldn't help uh, but, uh, you know, marvel at, at the perilous, as, as you had uh, commented, because... Many times um, in the course of doing migration work, we talk about African-Americans and immigrants as if it's two completely separate entities and um, having more conversations about what makes us, uh, what we have in common as opposed to how different we are, I think is uh, one critical component of um, uh, the, the movement building agenda for the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. Okay, thank you, Nunu. Anybody else have a comment, question? Has anybody read the book? What did you think of the book? Okay, don't be shy. For me, the book was very is very interesting because, as I said, I'm a child of the of the uh, Great Migration. My parents and my grandparents uh, once set migrated in the 40s from New Orleans to Los Angeles and Oakland. And my other set of grandparents migrated from New Orleans to St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, and so uh, to put that migration in the context that she puts it in was is, is very inspiring to look at the impact as a whole of the migration on U.S. society and uh, 
you know, and how it impacted U.S. society is is really expiring. And then looking at what Nunu just raised, the, the parallels with immigration, the work that I'm doing now, to see that uh, people left the South for much the same reason that people leave their home countries, uh, because of the oppression, uh, because of violence, because of economic exploitation. And so that is instructive to me to look at how we as African Americans uh, can relate to the immigration experience because of our own experiences. I'm going to take a caller from the 206 area code, Seattle, Washington. You're on. Hello? Yes. Hi. Um, my name is Monica Avery, and I live in Seattle, Washington. Um, and I am a mixed-race person. I'm black and Mexican. Um, and I wanted to know, I guess, um, was this series created to do to create allyship between African Americans and people of um, like current African diaspora, so um, more like Ethiopian, Somalian, things of that nature, um, or was it to do more parallels around current immigration things, also concerning um, Latinos as well? Um, because both, both, um, well, I mean, since my family is African American. Um, and we've been here, and I don't really know our migration pattern, um, then a lot of the stuff also that's happening with um, Mexican immigration issues are also of high importance to me. Yeah. Yeah, we're doing it for both of those reasons. I, I, I think that uh, migration is a universal experience, whether it's within borders or across borders. It's a universal experience. And so it's our look at this issue is really to look at how uh, the African diaspora, in all in all of its diversity, the commonalities with our migrations, and uh, of course there's a lot of dissimilarities, but there's an awful lot of commonalities, and so we want to draw that out and to look at uh, how uh, the experience of African Americans is very similar to the experience of immigrants, and how we can bring that experience into the debate around immigration. So thank you for your comment. I'm going to take a call in the 212 area code. Okay, you're on the air. Hi, my name is Sun Lee. I'm calling from um, New York. Um, I have a question about how the African-American community um, that were present in the North uh, worked with the, um, the groups that migrated up North work with the groups in terms of the civil rights movement or how did they work or support and what was the interaction between the African American communities that were already in um the northern the northern area mm -hmm. and those who were migrants, those those who immigrated from the south? Well I think there were several ways there was interaction. One was the issue of what we call in the immigration movement remittances. So there are an awful lot of African-Americans that were sending money back home to support their families because they were getting better-paying jobs, although the, the working conditions were horrible in the North and in the West, uh, and the wages were below what white workers were making. Still, they were making more money than they were making in the South, and so they were sending money home. Now, when the Civil Rights Movement started, a lot of the civil rights movement was financed by by African Americans in the North, both celebrities like Harry Belafonte, uh, James Baldwin, uh, 
uh, a whole range of celebrities were, but also just people working everyday people were sending money to SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, to the uh, to SCLC, Southern Com- Southern Christian Leadership Conference that Dr. King headed up, uh, and uh, African Americans were were joining groups like SNCC in going to the South to do voter registration, to do the sit-ins. And so there was a very constant interaction back and forth between African Americans in the North and in the West and the South. Uh, I guess I, I want to, I, my question, let me clarify my question. Sure. Um, I'm assuming that there was a group of African Americans already in the North before the migration, or was there not? Um, and um, if there was, then how did those the community that was already rooted in the north um, work with oh, I see. new right um, African Americans coming from the south to you know work in the north and to then you know earn money and and do all that? Yes, thank you for your call. I'm going to make a couple of comments on that. If anybody else has any information about that, uh, please chime in. Uh, uh, there's there's two kinds of interactions. Uh, oftentimes there was uh, conflict between folks who had been in the north or in the west for a very long time, fe- fearing that these newcomers were undermining their status in society uh, because they came with southern folk ways. They came with uh, uh, you know they came with a, a different mindset, and so. Oftentimes, people who had been settled for a long time in the north or the west resented the newcomers. There was also a trend of helping the newcomers. So it wasn't just one or the other. It was there were societies developed to help the newcomers settle in the north and the west. So uh, so that was uh, kind of a dual thing that was going on. Does anybody else have uh, any information about that? I think there's a similar thing going on in in immigration. Uh, many Mexicans coming across the border, uh, particularly in the border states, there are people there who are descendants uh, of migrants from Mexico, or, or when Mexico, when U.S. was part of uh, when Texas and New Mexico were part of the United States, California, there are long-standing families that oftentimes resent the newcomers uh, coming into the United States. Uh, and uh, but there's also a huge movement that includes many of the folks that are of Mexican descent that have been in this country for decades and for uh, generations. So there's a similar thing. Uh, that happened in the great migrations of African-Americans. Other comments? I still didn't hear if anybody has read the book. Has anybody read the book or started reading the book? Okay, here we go. We're taking a call from the 212 area code. Yes, you're on. Hi, this is Sana again. Actually, I just wanted to follow up um, on my last question and the comment that you made. Um, 
you said there was a trend of helping the newcomers. Actually, I'm very interested in um, how the community helped the newcomers. Um, I'm working for an uh, immigration um, an organization, and we're trying to come up with um, best practices of how we can um, engage the immigrant community now and looking at, you know, um, what the African-American community did in the past. Mm -hmm. I want to see if there's something that we can, you know, learn from um, the what they've done, uh, what you've done um, in the past to see if there's something that we can uh, learn from that. Well, uh, uh, we should probably talk offline about that. I, okay. We can probably uh, help direct you to some resources around those issues. Okay. But... Uh, you can contact us at gerald at blackalliance.org, and we can carry that conversation on. Gerald? Yes, at blackalliance.org. G-E-R-A-L-D? Correct. Okay. All right, I'm going to take a call Thank from you. 703 area code. Hello. Uh, yes, this is Sheila, and I uh, just wanted to say I um, enjoyed the interview very much. Um, have experienced uh, relationships with people who have come from all of these areas, uh, the migration of my parents uh, from North Carolina to Philadelphia, uh, my son's in-laws from New Orleans to L.A., and then dear friends in the Chicago area uh, coming from Mississippi. And it was, uh, I guess at the time, I didn't know a lot about the migration patterns of African Americans um, in the United States as far as Mississippi to Chicago, but I sure ran into a lot of people there uh, and would always say to people, you know, there are an awful lot of people from Mississippi and Chicago. So um, I am in a book club, uh, Books and Brunch. We've been together for 15 years, and we're getting ready to read the book in March. So wanted to get a preview, and it was an excellent interview wanted to find out whether or not this is uh, was broadcast on television and if it's going to be rebroadcast. It is broadcast on television, and if you Google uh, Isabel Wilkerson interviews, it'll come up, and uh, it's, it's an audio and a video of the interview online. I don't know if it's going to be rebroadcast, but you can, look, you can listen to it online. Okay, thank you. Very interesting conversation. Thank you. Other comments? Okay. Well, I would definitely recommend that people get the book, read the book, uh, and um, and really look at how the uh, African American migration has really transform this country and uh, and how the experience of African Americans relate to the current debate around immigration. I want to point you to a couple of resources if you're doing work within the African American community around these issues or if you're doing work around immigration. It's a great tool. Uh, one is called, it's a video called Up South. African-American Migration in the Era of the Great War. It's a 30-minute documentary that was produced by the American Social History Project, which is a part of the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. 
this is a it's a docu- thirty minute documentary on the African American migration from Mississippi to Chicago during and after World War One. It's very instructive. Uh, you can go to www.ashp.cuny.edu uh, to look at a copy of it and to uh, order it. Uh, we also got the uh, the producers to to have a version with Spanish subtitles so that we could use with uh, Latino immigrant communities to do some education around the African-American migration. The other resource that I want to point you to is an online resource by the Schomburg Center uh, for the uh, Study of Black Culture in New York City. It's called In Motion, the African-American Migration Experience. And it it's an online uh, timeline that starts with the transatlantic slave trade and goes through 13 different migrations, which includes the great migrations that we just talked about. It talks about Caribbean immigration. It talks about Haitian immigration in the 18th and 19th centuries and in the 20th century. It talks about the African migration, the contemporary African migration from the continent of Africa. It's an excellent resource, and that can be found at www. In motion, A-A-M-E dot org. That's www.inmotionaame dot org. Uh, and uh, the Black Alliance for Just Immigration has a, a photo exhibit uh, of this of the this in motion migration experience. Uh, if you're in the Bay Area, we've been showing it for Black History Month. So I want to thank everyone for being on the call. Our next teleconference is on Thursday, March 31st. It's called New Africans Grappling with the Concept of Race and Identity. Our speaker is Jackie Copeland Carson, who is the author of Creating African America, Translocal Identity in Emerging World City. And the book is about the uh, work in Minneapolis with bringing African Americans and Africans from the continent together to discuss their commonalities and their differences and to look at how they work socially and politically together. So we invite you to join us for that series. Again, thank you for joining us, and we hope that you enjoyed this teleconference. Take care.